Well, God is so good, amen? And I believe that God's word speaks to us exactly as we need in the moment. And so with that belief and that trust, we're gonna open up to Genesis chapter two, and we're gonna be looking at verses four through 18. And I have no idea how God is gonna use this scripture in your life today. I just believe the Holy Spirit of God is powerful and uses the word of God in our lives to shape us to look more like Christ. And so I'm trusting the spirit of God to speak through his word to you uh, in a way today that is beyond what is explainable by humans, that there is just a word for you today. There's no accident that you're here in this room right now. God has a word for you from the Bible. And uh, we have been looking at Genesis and uh, last week we looked at the last paragraph of Genesis chapter one, which talks about our identity as people. What does it mean to be human? Uh, What does it mean to be somebody who is created by God? And we talked about our identity not being uh, essentially defined by us. We don't define our own identity. Uh, Our identity is not found in our successes or in our failures, in our best moments or our worst moments. I'm thankful for that. We're not defined by what we do or what has been done to us. We are who God says we are. And God says that we are created in his image. That's who we are. Now in chapter two, verses four and following, we're gonna see a retelling of the creation story, a retelling of the story of the creation of humanity. And we're gonna get a little bit more information, a little bit more detail than what we had in chapter one. And and here, if the end of chapter one tells us something about our identity, these verses are gonna tell us something about our purpose. Why are we here? And that's an important question you need to answer. Not only who am I, but why am I here? Uh, Not only what is my identity, but what is my purpose? And here's the thing, we don't get to define our own purpose. God defines our purpose. God helps us understand why we exist and what we're to do. Uh, Somebody has said that the greatest tragedy is not death, it's life without purpose. I want you to know though that each and every one of you has a purpose, you're here on purpose. God has created you for a purpose and we get to see what our purpose is as we open up the pages of scripture, the Bible defines for us what our purpose is as humans. I want you to imagine for a moment that a thousand years from now, an archeologist came to excavate your house. And he's pulling out all kinds of household items and trying to explain what these items are. Can you imagine how difficult that would be a thousand years from now as they dig through the rubble and they pull all of these household items out of your house and they're trying to explain the purpose of these things? You know, like how would you explain the purpose of a washing machine a thousand years from now or a hair dryer? You know, it looks like a gun, but doesn't take bullets. It shoots air at your hair. What, you know, imagine how, how about a toilet plunger? Can you imagine pulling that out of the rubble of your house a thousand years from now and somebody's trying to understand what these ancient people back in 2023 used this for? Maybe they thought it was a musical instrument or a food, a food dish, you know, it looks like a cereal bowl. Somebody has to be there to, to explain it, right? Somebody has to come and say, this is what the purpose of that thing is for. Well, folks, that's why we have a Bible. A Bible helps us understand not only our identity, but our purpose, not only who we are, but what God has called us to do. And in Genesis chapter two, we begin to see some different aspects of the purpose for which we were created, the purpose of humanity. And so I want you to see specifically four things, okay? Now I'm not promising you that we're gonna get to all four. This is service number three. I told you I've been having a bad day. I haven't gotten to all four in either of the other two services. So we'll see how, we, how far we get today, all right? But we're gonna go probably at least three, 
maybe four. We'll see. Here's the first thing I want you to see from the text. And that is that God has given us a life to steward. God has given you, you ask, what is my purpose? Well, God, you need to realize, first of all, that God has entrusted to you your life. He has perfectly formed you. He's made you on purpose. And you are called to steward that life well. To be a steward means to be a manager of something that doesn't belong ultimately to you. Something belongs to someone else. They entrust it to you for a time and you are to manage that faithfully for them. From time to time, when we take trips, uh, we ask people to house sit for us. We hand them the keys to our house and we're stewarding our house to their care for a period of time. Well, the Lord has given you a life. He's given you breath. He's given you a lifespan, however long, that might be 20 years, it might be 80 years. But however long he's given to you, he's given it to you as a stewardship that you are to steward faithfully for his glory. Look at what the text says, Genesis chapter two, and I wanna read verses four through seven. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not yet made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So this is describing creation at its initial stages. And the text says there, there weren't shrubs because there was no rain and there were no plants because there was no man to cultivate the ground. And so what does God do about that? Well, in verse six, he, cre- he, he mists the ground. He creates water for the ground so that, that uh, shrubs can grow. And then he creates a man to work uh, and cultivate the garden so that plants can grow. Look at verse six. It says, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. Now, this is a very vivid picture of the creation of the very first man. I want you to notice a few things about verse seven and how the first human is described. Notice, notice first of all, it says that man is dust. Okay, did you see that in verse seven? He forms the man out of the dust from the ground. Now that's not a very flattering description of humanity, is it? Kind of flies in the face of what our culture says about us. But actually the Bible begins here. It says we are from the dust of the ground. That's a reference to our lowliness, our humility, our fragility, uh, the fleeting nature of mankind. There's actually a word play here in Hebrew. Man is Adam or Adam. It means man. Ground is Adama. So Adam comes from Adama. Man comes from the ground, from the dust of the earth. And this is a reference here to our lowliness and our dependency as, as humans. I, I am not, as the poet William Ernest Henley once wrote, I am not the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I'm dust, fundamentally as a human. I, I'm lowly, I'm fragile, I'm, I'm fleeting. I, I am not God, I am man. There's a fundamental distinction here between the creator of the universe and the creation between creator and created, between God and man. Yes, we are made in the image of God, but my life is dependent on God for my very life and breath. Like a newborn baby that's dependent on its mother for its existence. There's a sense in which to be made of dust means that you are completely dependent on God for your existence. This is how the psalmist understood this. Listen to the words of Psalm 103 and verses 13 through 16. 
This is what the psalmist says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are what? Dust. What does it mean to be dust? We'll look at the next verse. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field, but when the wind passes over it, it vanishes and its place is no longer known. Do you see the sense of like, uh, it's fleeting, right? Just like you can have, now listen, we don't understand this exactly in East Texas because grass just grows, you know, left, right, and center. You don't even have to do anything with it. It just grows. But in West Texas, where you have to water it all the time and it still dies, this would make sense, right? In the arid uh, climate of Israel, this would make sense. Grass is here today, a wind comes and poof, it's gone. And the psalmist is saying, that's what it means to be made of dust. It means that we are fleeting and we are fragile. Our life is short. Our life is small. Uh, the, the author of Ecclesiastes says that life is vanity. It, it, it's a vapor. The, the word in Hebrew he uses in Ecclesiastes 1 is it's havel. You can even almost picture it in your mind as you hear the word havel. It's like breath. It's here and then poof, it's gone. We're dust. But we are more than just dust. Notice what the text tells us. We are dust that has been formed. Look, we are God formed. Did you see this? The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. The word form, formed here is used of a potter who forms clay into something purposeful and beautiful. If you wanna know who you are as a human, you are not an accident. You are not by, here by cosmic chance. You are here because a master potter has taken dust and formed it into something beautiful. You are here as the handiwork of the master potter. That makes you important. It makes you special. Yes, you're dust, but you're not just dust. You are God formed. It's interesting the word formed here is used elsewhere in Genesis and it's translated as the word intent, intent. In Genesis 6, 5, for instance, which is talking about the days of Noah. It says all of the intents of the human heart were always evil. It's the same word used here. The idea is that the master potter has formed you with intent, that there is a, a reason that you exist. And, and folks, let me just say this. Satan loves to lie to us and tell us that we are here on accident and that we have no purpose. And there are people who have maybe said things to you in your life that maybe have been minimizing to you or hurtful or wounding. Maybe, maybe people have said that you don't have purpose or you don't matter that much. Maybe your, your own mind has said that. Maybe you've sensed satanic attack and you have just not felt very special. The text of scripture tells us that you are formed by a God who loves you, who created you on purpose. You have intent. You are here by careful design, which means you matter. Not only are you God-formed, you're also God-breathed. Look down at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And then look at this, breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. That's an intensely personal picture. God coming to this clay, this mud, this dust of the earth that he's forming like a master potter into something beautiful. And then he, literally in Hebrew, it means a puff. He, it's like puff, breathes the breath of life. And all of a sudden man becomes a living being. This, this, uh, this is intensely personal. In fact, somebody has said that to breathe in this way is warmly personal. It has the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss. 
And the significance is that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. What he's saying here is God didn't just make you, he gave something of himself to you. Even at our making then, the pattern God so loved that he gave is already visible. He takes dust, he forms it, and then breathes the breath of life into it. That means you're special. Now look, when God breathes the breath of life, it says man became a living being. Just notice that phrase, a living being. The word for being there is the word we translate elsewhere as the word soul. That shows us that God, this, is, this breath of life is not just oxygen. It's not just that God is, is like, you know, doing CPR and resuscitating and breathing oxygen into our system. No, there, there's a miracle of life that's happening here. God is breathing the breath of life and we are becoming a living soul. That's a miracle of creation. God is giving mankind a life, a soul, something that is more than just earthly, more than just dust, but something that has eternality and purpose beyond this world. Listen, God created you not just as a body, he created you with a soul. He, he created you as someone who will live for eternity and you have spiritual and eternal purpose. You were made for more. You were not made just to occupy time and space. You were made to inhabit eternity. And you were given a life, a significant life, a life that was intended for eternity. You were given a soul to steward. James Earl Massey says that all people are entrusted persons. God has entrusted to you the breath of life. You have a soul, you have a purpose for being here and it has been entrusted to you to steward that well. So the question is, how are you stewarding your life? How are you spending this life that God has entrusted to you? There, there's a man that some of you may have heard of named C.T. Studd and C.T. Studd went to Cambridge University, played cricket for Cambridge. Now, cricket is like baseball, but without the fun. And, but it's very popular all around the world. And he was a championship cricket player. He went on to play for their national team, won a national championship. And he had this very bright athletic future ahead of him when God called him to be a missionary to China. He began to share that calling with his family. And he, his mother told him, basically, don't waste your life. Anybody can be a missionary. Not everybody has athletic gifting to go and win a championship for England, you know, in cricket. She thought he would be wasting his great athletic talent and abilities to go and, and uh, serve on the mission field. Well, C.T. Studd ignored his mom and he went anyway. He was part of the Cambridge Seven that went and started a missionary society and changed uh, really the trajectory of China at that time and made a great impact for the kingdom of God. And Stud once wrote a poem, and some of you have heard this line from it. Stud said, you know, essentially to his mom, this is not a waste of my life. In fact, this is not even a sacrifice. Christ dying on the cross for me, that's a sacrifice. Going to serve him is a privilege. And he wrote this poem, and this is the line that has stuck out in my mind for many years. He says, only one life will soon be passed. If you know it, you can say it with me. Only what's done for Christ will last only one life. You've got one life and it will be over very quickly. Only what is done for Christ will last. How are you stewarding the life that has been entrusted to you? Part of your purpose is stewarding that life faithfully. 
But there's a second thing I want you to see about our purpose. In verses 8 through 15, we see not only does God give us a life to steward, he also gives us a task to complete, a task to complete. God creates mankind. He puts man into the Garden of Eden and gives him a a job to do, a task to complete. Look at verses 8 through 15. It says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he placed the man that he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and Onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river, you might recognize it, is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river, you might also recognize, it's the Euphrates. So these verses are just showing the beauty of the garden that God puts Adam into. This is a beautiful place. It's a paradise, actually. The word Eden means pleasure. And God puts Adam into this pleasurable garden that's full of all kinds of delicious uh, fruit. That was a thing back then. This was prior to the fall. Fruit and delicious could be in the same uh, sentence. It's got all the fruits that are, that are great for food. You have the picture of these streams that are flowing, four streams. Now, you might say, well, uh, I know Tigris and Euphrates. What about those other two? Well, we don't know what happened to those other two rivers. It might have been that they were wiped out during the flood. We don't know. We know of the Tigris and the Euphrates. We don't know of these other two rivers. But the, the picture that you're getting uh, painted here is just of this beautiful garden. There's all these precious stones, gold, and so forth. It's this lovely place for man to be. That shows us something about God's intention for for mankind. His design was for our joy. He wants us to live and flourish and enjoy in the world that he's made. And the garden was a good place to be, but it wasn't yet all that God intended for it to be. For it to become all that God intended it to be, he needed to put man there to work the ground. So that's exactly what he does. Look down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden. And notice this, here's the task to work it and watch over it. Let's say that together, to work it and to watch over it. That is the task that God gave Adam to complete. And it is a task that he gives us to complete as well. He gives mankind a task to complete. He gives mankind a garden to keep. And there's two tasks, work the garden and watch the garden. Uh, God, God put Adam in charge of a patch of earth. And God says, I want you to do two things. I want you to work it. I want you to watch over it. I want you uh, first to cultivate what's been entrusted to you and then to care for it or to keep it, to guard it. So let's just talk about those two ideas here for just a moment. This means, first of all, that we, to, to work the garden means that we are to make something of that which the Lord has entrusted to us. The Lord has entrusted to each and every one in this room a particular patch of earth that is under your care and responsibility. Now that patch of earth might be a family. That patch of earth might be a job. That patch of earth might be the opportunity to go to school and learn. That patch of earth might be a a set of relationships that God has put into your life. But the Lord has entrusted to us, every single one of us has a patch of earth, a garden to keep. 
And the Lord wants us to cultivate that garden, to work it, to develop it into something more than it was when he entrusted it to us. This is part of what it means in chapter 1 and verse 28 when he says to be fruitful. Certainly being fruitful refers to having children and so forth, but, but it also refers to God's intention for our life, that we would be fruitful people that take the, what the Lord has entrusted to us and make something more of it. Uh, if God gives you a house, make it into a home. If God gives you a business, grow that business. If God gives you a garden, weed it and plant it. If God gives you a marriage, invest in it so that it will flourish. You can think about the instruction to work the garden. You can think about it in terms of a plow, okay? You might just write that word out in the margin, a plow. Now, for those of you like me who grew up in the city, you may not know what a plow is, okay? But a plow is something that works the earth. If you come to a particular patch of uh, ground that is stony and has weeds in it, you're gonna take that plow and you're gonna till up the earth. You're gonna dig into it to remove the stones and remove the weeds and take, take what has potential and make it into something usable. A plow is one way of thinking about the work that God has called us to do, the, the task that he's given us to complete. He's put a, a garden in front of you and that garden has great potential, but it's up to you to dig in with the plow and make something of what God has put in front of you. That's what it means to cultivate the earth or to develop <clears throat> the earth. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. He tells a story about a master who entrusted talents to his servants. Now, a talent is not like your ability to play a mean flute or the ability to juggle or something like that. A talent in the ancient world was a form of money. So here's a master who's entrusting his financial possessions to his servants and there's three servants listed in Matthew chapter 25. There's a servant who takes what is entrusted to him and multiplies it times five. That's pretty impressive. If I gave you $10 and you could turn it into $50 in a week, I would probably give you all my money because you can multiply it, right? You're making something of it. The next servant <clears throat> took what was entrusted to him and multiplied it by two. Now that's still pretty good. If you could take my money and double it in a week, I would still probably give you all my money because you're taking what has been entrusted and you're making something of it. But the third servant took the money that the master entrusted to him and instead of multiplying it at all or doing anything with it, all he did was he put it in a mayonnaise jar and buried it in the backyard to keep it safe. He played it safe. He took no risks. Well, the master comes <clears throat> and examines the work of the three servants. To the one who multiplied it, uh, what he had entrusted by five, he says, awesome, great job, well done. You have been a good steward. You have multiplied what I've entrusted to you. He comes to the servant who multiplied it by two and he says the exact same thing. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you have the ability to take something and multiply it by five or take something and multiply it by two. You can get a well done from God. You, you can get a commendation. But to the third servant, instead of commendation, the third servant received condemnation because he didn't do anything with what was entrusted to him. And the point is very simple. God gives all of us different abilities, right? He entrusts different things to us. He gives us different abilities. You might have the ability to take something and do something really grand with it and turn it like times five into something. And that's great. But really, you're not doing anything that's more faithful than the person who takes something and multiplies it times two. It doesn't matter, in other words, the size of the multiplication. If you are faithful to take what the Lord has entrusted to you and do something with it and develop it into more than what it was, the Lord comes and says, good job. 
You have taken what I entrusted. I, I entrusted you with little. Now you can be faithful with much. The only thing that the Lord does not want is for him to entrust something to us and us to do nothing with it like that third servant. We are intended to work the garden, to do something with what the Lord has given you. If he has given you an intellect, do something with that intellect for his glory. If he's given you a family, do something meaningful with your family for his glory. If he's given you a job, you work that job to the bone for his glory. Do something with what the Lord has entrusted you. Work the garden. Uh, my son Austin uh, has an, a great ability to take something and make it into something better than it was at first. I've seen this most recently in his ability to make tent forts in my living room. He'll make these tent forts in my living room for one of his sisters. Now, his sisters used to ask me to make tent forts, and I thought they were pretty good. Four chairs and a sheet, you know? It's a tent fort. Now, I've noticed that they've stopped asking me to make them. Instead, they ask their brother. And the other day, I saw why. Because a couple weeks ago, he made a tent fort. He invited me to come look, so I crawled down, climbed in. It was awesome. It was like the Ritz-Carlton of tent forts. It had a window. It had a slide. It had a pool with palm trees trees. It was amazing. His mind just works that way. He sees a, a tent for it and he's like, I can make something really cool from this. Some of you have that ability as well. God intends for all of us to take what he puts in front of us and to steward and multiply that well. But there's a second thing. Not only are we to watch, excuse me, to work the garden, we're also to watch over it. Now to watch over the garden means that we are to guard and to defend what the Lord entrusts to our care. So we're not just to work the garden, we're to watch it. We're not just to cultivate, we are to care. We're not just to produce something with what the Lord has entrusted, but to protect it. We're not just to grow, we are to guard. We're not just to develop, we are to defend. If working the garden, you could think of in terms of a plow, watching over the garden, you could think of in terms of a sword. Okay, so you might just write that word out there next to watch over. Just write a sword right there next to it. I think about Nehemiah and the Israelites. You remember the Israelites had been in exile in Babylon and God brought them back to Jerusalem and the walls of the city were broken down and God called them to rebuild the walls. But there were all of these enemies who wanted to attack the work. And so there's this very poignant description of the Israelites where they're, they're building the wall and they have a trowel in one hand and they have a sword in the other. Each Israelite was given a trowel and a sword because they were to build and also to defend. And there's a sense in which all of us have been given that responsibility as well. We have been called to build, but also to defend. Now think about this as it relates to the church, for instance. Right here at Marbury Baptist Church, God has called us to join with him in his work to develop and build this church into something that pleases him. Amen? Something we're all called to do. We are all called to work the garden, to build something here with the Lord. But the church is also always in danger of attack. And, and that attack can come from multiple sources. It can come from internal division. It can come from external opposition. It can come from satanic attack or theological error or some other threat to the life and health of the church. We need to be prepared both to build and to defend, to grow, but also to guard, 
Think about how many times Paul tells Timothy over and over and over again to pay a careful attention to teach in accordance with sound doctrine. And then he'll also say, and defend against false teaching, right? You see, build and defend. Paul will say, fight for unity, that's build. Watch out for division, that's defend. We're called to both grow and to guard. Think about how this might relate to your home. God has called all of us to develop in our home godliness and Christ-centeredness and intimacy of relationship, right? That would be working the garden that God has given us in our home. But we also need to be prepared to defend against attack and temptation and harmful influences in the home. Because Satan hates marriage. He hates families. He hates the home. And so think about it, husbands and wives, God has called you to work the garden of your marriage, but you've also got to watch over it. You've got to grow and develop and produce, but you also have to guard and defend and protect because Satan is going to try to sneak in and harm your marriage. So you've got to have a, a, a plow in the one hand and a sword in the other. Think about with your children, if the Lord has entrusted children to you, your children are a stewardship from the Lord and you need to grow them and develop them and work that garden. But you also need to be on your guard about satanic influences over your kids. You need to be on the watch with a sword in your hand, prepared to defend against satanic attack, harmful influences in your home. That is your calling and responsibility, your task to complete. Think about it, this as it relates to not just the church and not just the home, think about how it relates to the human heart. My calling as a believer in Christ is to grow in Christ, to work the garden, to do my part in the work of sanctification with the Lord, to develop as a believer. But I also need to guard and watch out for spiritual slothfulness and sinful temptation and satanic attack. Our task as humans, part of our purpose in serving God is to work what God has entrusted to us, whether it's in the church or in the home or in our workplace or in our own hearts, but also to watch over it with the plow and with the sword. Amen? There's a third thing. As we think about our purpose, we've been given a life to steward. We've been given a task to complete. We've also been given a command to obey. God gives humanity a command to obey. And we see it in verses 16 and 17. Listen to me, as you think about your purpose, what, not only who you are as a human, but what you're to do as a human, God calls us to a life of obedience. Part of our purpose in discovering why we are here is to discover that we were made to obey God and to live under his kindly rule. You see this in verses 16 and 17. It's actually the first command in the Bible. Look what it says. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16. <clears throat> now there are going to be two parts to the command, okay? There's going to be a positive and a negative. There's going to be permission and prohibition. Uh, there's going to be a provision and a limitation. Okay, so let's look at the positive part of the command in verse 16 first. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, I think it's interesting that the commands of God don't begin with negatives, but with positives. They don't, they don't begin with prohibitions. They begin with permissions. They don't begin with limitations. They, they begin with 
provisions. God says, look at this garden. I've stuck you in this beautiful place, this paradise, and I've given you uh, all these trees that you can eat from. Verse 9 tells us all the trees were pleasurable to look at. They were good for food. This is before steak and barbecue and bacon, okay? Pre-fall, it's fruit. He says, look at all this fruit you can eat. Look at this whole garden you can enjoy. I, I, I think that it's interesting that God's first command begins with, you are free. Isn't that interesting? Because we often think about God's commands as restricting our freedom, which is a lie from the enemy. In fact, in Genesis 3, a couple of weeks we'll see this, Satan says, didn't God say you can't? Actually, what God began with was you can. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden except for one. But, but look at what all I've provided for you. And I think that's important because the human heart, it's very easy for us to think about God's commands as being oppressive, restrictive. We buck against his word because we think he's limiting us in some way in our freedom. <clears throat> but obedience is freedom. Amen? Obedience is freedom. You are free, God says, to eat from any of the trees. Alan Ross puts it this way. In this passage, all earthly goods and pleasures are at the man's disposal. You may eat to your heart's content, except this one tree. So often we focus on the one thing God has told us not to do instead of enjoying all the things God has given to us to enjoy. God says you are free to do all of these things. He doesn't begin with a thou shalt not. He begins with a thou shalt. He begins with provision and permission and freedom. And God says, enjoy the life I've made for you. Look at all that I've provided for you. Be satisfied with what I've given you to enjoy. Except for one tree. There's one limitation. This is the negative part of the command. We see it in verse 17. It's the prohibition. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly, what does it say there? Die. So there is a limitation here. God says, look, I want you to understand my commands as being for your good. I want you to understand my commands, first of all, as being a, a kind of freedom where you get to enjoy all that I've made. But I am going to create a limitation. I'm going to create a boundary. And even the boundary <clears throat> is for your good. Now, the boundary, what was the boundary? Well, he says, there's one tree. I've created all these trees. You can enjoy all of them except for this one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, I, you, you cannot eat that. Now, what was that all about? Well, most scholars think that to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would essentially be, it, it represented mankind making decisions about what is good and what is evil without reference to God. In fact, I want you to hear a couple of quotes. Abraham Curavilla says this. He says, this tree represents man's moral autonomy and his seeking to make moral judgments without privileging divine revelation. Man had decided he would be the arbiter of what to eat and what not to what to do and what not to, what to abide by and what not to. God's words were not going to preclude him from making a decision of his own, <clears throat> even if it were contrary to divine order. Thus, this account is about man taking upon himself the responsibility to determine whether something was good for himself or not. 
This is ultimately a question of dependence upon God or independence from God. Boy, that's good. Kent Hughes puts it very similarly. Listen to what Kent Hughes says. He says, the temptation was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It was an act of moral autonomy, deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. Does that sound like America in 2023 or what? Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they sought it outside of the word and will of God. They usurped God's role in determining what is right and wrong. So here we get to the very heart of original sin. It was to sidestep God and his word and will in order to become wise. Moral autonomy brings, what does it say? Death. I did it my way is an autonomous dirge of death. That's good. I did it my way. Right, Frank Sinatra slash Burger King. I'll have it my way. That's what the human heart wants. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want someone else outside of me determining what is right or wrong or what choices I can make or not in my life. I get to determine my own destiny. I get to determine my identity. I get to define my purpose. I get to choose what is right and wrong. I will reach out and decide between good and evil. That's moral autonomy. Living your life without reference to God, that's original sin, sidestepping God. And God says, if you reach out and take it will lead to death. That is what our sin always leads to. It leads to death. Here's the reality. The boundaries God puts in our lives are for our good, not for our harm. Boundaries, listen, there was a boundary here in the Garden of Eden. God gives boundaries to all of us and we don't like those, right? When we see the sign that says, wet paint, don't touch, what do we do? Uh, uh. We want to make sure, right? Because it's like, I don't want a sign telling me what I can and can't do. We just ignore the boundaries. But God puts limitations in our life. He puts boundaries in our life for our good, not for our harm. Think about it. If you go to the zoo and there's a fence and it says, do not climb over the fence. Right? I, I don't know about you, but my, the little rebellious heart in here says, I want to climb over that fence. What's over there? I'm starting to peek. What's over the fence that I can't get over into? I paid $15 to get my ticket into the zoo. I ought to be able to climb over any fence I want to. And who's the zookeeper to tell me which fence I can't climb over? Climb over a fence if I want to. This is Texas, for goodness sake. (laughs) But what if there's lions on the other side of that fence? That the the zookeeper knows are there. I don't know they're there because I don't have the zookeeper's perspective. And you see, now all of a sudden, that fence became something that I thought of, first of all, as restrictive, as limiting my fun. Now I realize it actually is there for my good. You see, that, that's how limitations and boundaries work in our life as well. God says, have one wife. Be faithful to her. You might think that that is some kind of cosmic killjoy. No, it's for your good. It's for your good. God says, uh, you're not to work endlessly. Don't be a workaholic. You work six days, but one day a week, there's a limitation. There's a boundary. Take one day to rest. You say, that's not, ah, that's restrictive. No, it's for your good. God knows that sin hurts us. And God hates what hurts us. 
because he is a good God who loves us. And so he creates boundaries and fences in our life, limitations for us to observe because he wants to preserve rather than to kill our joy. Does that make sense? Listen to what Andrew Walker says. He says, if scripture hands down an ethical imperative, even if it seems at first blush to strike us as counterintuitive or impossible or difficult, we must confess this. The shape of scripture's moral commands issuing from a good God are always there to bless us and never to curse us. The cross is indeed heavy, but it is never less than always good. You see, God gives us a command to obey. His commands are, first of all, provision. Enjoy. <laughs> Look at what I've made for you. But there's also pro prohibitions that God sets up, boundaries that he sets up in our lives to preserve our joy. And it's for our good because our God is good. Amen. And here's the deal. Uh, I'm not going to get to point four. <laughs> we'll get to it next week. All right. We'll just pick right up where we left off next week. But let me just dip into it. Okay. Can I preview it for you? Because here's the thing. We don't obey his commands, do we? We don't do well with this. We don't steward our lives well. We don't complete our task well. We don't obey his commands well. We're going to see the rest of the story. Genesis 3, one chapter later, Adam and Eve basically ignore God. They say, okay, here's the boundary. There's the line. I'm crossing it. I will choose for myself. And everything goes wrong from there. But here's how much God loves us. God is not, God is not like this. God is not like, okay, here's my standard that you can never meet. And I'm waiting for you to fail so that I can get you. Sometimes we think about God that way. That God's holding out an impossible standard. <clears throat> and then when we fail, he's ready to just sort of smite us. The God of the Bible is a, is a different kind of God. The God of the Bible says, okay, I love you. That's why I've made you. I've made you to experience my love. And I've provided a pathway for you to experience blessing and flourishing. And that looks like obedience. And you're going to fail. But in your failure, I still have a plan. Because in Genesis chapter 3, mankind rebels, but God makes a promise to send someone who will rescue them from their, from their mess. And God says, I, I not only have a plan for your failure, because even though this is my good design for you, you're not going to obey. You're not going to do what I've called you to do, but I, that's okay. I still love you. I'm going to rescue you. I've got a plan set in motion before time even began to send my son to redeem you from your failure. But then God does even more. Not only does he redeem and rescue and forgive and restore, he also makes us new. And he gives us his power to be who he's called us to be and to do what he's called us to do. Here's the fourth point that I'm not going to be able to give you, okay? God gives us a companion to help. He gives us a companion to help. In verse 18, he's going to say, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to create a helper for him. And this is just the only thing I'm going to say about it. All right, I'm going to just dip into it for a second. The only thing I'm going to say about it is we need help. And God knows that from the beginning. We need help. We can't steward our life well by ourselves. 
We cannot complete our tasks well by ourselves. We cannot obey his commands well by ourselves. We need help. We need other people. So God creates a helper. And what I want you to know is that he creates help for us as well to be who he's called us to be. Now, that might be, like in Genesis 2, a spouse. God gives us marriage to help us. But for all of us, he gives us Christian friends called the church to help us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. We have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus to help us because God knows we need help to be who he's called us to be and to do what he's called us to do. And God loves you so much, he provides all the help that you need. And so the Christian life is just a matter of daily dependence on our our God who is our help. And if we wanna live out our purpose, it's that daily dependence on God to help us, not moral autonomy, but rather daily dependence on God, our help. Amy and I scuba dive. When you're 100 feet under the water, your life is dependent on the oxygen that's in the tank. And you've got a mouthpiece, a regulator. Every breath you take is dependent on the oxygen that's going to come from that mouthpiece. And in a very real sense, if you want to live out the purpose that God has for your life, it is going to be a daily, every breath kind of dependence on God, our help. Amen? And with his help, we can obey. And when we fail, there is grace. And I'm thankful for it. Let's bow and go before him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have called us to a purpose that is good. We are thankful for your grace when we fail. We are thankful for your help to live out the purpose you've put in our lives. So Lord, help us to grow in daily dependence upon you in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.